Nate, are you in bed with random.org because you've ended up going first for both of these randomized <laughs> snake drafts? I will not answer a personal question like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, this does feel rigged. Yeah. Third, twice. I mean, you know, these days, everything's rigged. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drew. President Biden has said that he intends to run for re-election in 2024. Time will tell if he follows through, but even if he does, he still may face opponents in the Democratic primary. His approval rating is currently 10 points underwater and his approval with Democrats has dropped about 15 to 20 points since taking office. He would also be 82 at the start of his second term. And he said when he ran in 2020 that he sees himself as a quote, bridge to a new generation of leaders. With that in mind, we're gonna follow up on last week's Republican 2024 primary draft with our first Democratic primary draft. What does the bench of Democratic leadership look like beyond Joe Biden? We're also going to check in on the latest developments in the current round of redistricting. After a number of state court rulings, it looks like Republicans may maintain their redistricting advantage for the coming decade. And relatedly, primary season begins in earnest tomorrow, Tuesday, and we'll let you know what to keep an eye on. Here with me to do that is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Also here with us is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, yo. Hey, Galen. And elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. All right. We got a lot to cover today, so we're going to dive right in. As the primaries get underway, a few states have struggled to complete their congressional and state legislative maps for the next decade. Last week, New York's highest court threw out its maps for violating the state constitution's ban on gerrymandering. The maps favored Democrats in 22 of the state's 26 seats. Meanwhile, limitations on gerrymandering in Florida and Ohio don't seem to have prevented maps that favor Republicans from remaining in place. So let's discuss where these maps stand now that Americans are in many places getting ready to vote and in some places have already started voting. So Nathaniel, you've been leading 538's redistricting coverage this cycle. What are the biggest outstanding questions in terms of, you know, wrapping up redistricting nationwide? Yeah, so right now there are only four states that haven't completed congressional redistricting, or I should say that don't kind of have currently operative congressional maps. And those are two states that just haven't passed a map. That's New Hampshire and Missouri. And then there are two states whose maps have been overthrown in court, and that's Kansas and New York. Because of its size, I would say that New York is, of course, the biggest question mark. As you alluded to, Galen, the previous map that Democrats had passed was this extraordinary extreme democratic gerrymander that was a big part of why a lot of analysts, including ourselves, had kind of declared that Democrats had um, made substantial gains during this redistricting cycle. But that is no longer true. And so the big question is, what kind of map will replace it? Will it be something similar to the current map, which is fairly fair? Or maybe will Democrats still gain a little bit or might they even lose a seat or two? That's, I think, a big question, as well as kind of what happens in these other states where maybe there's one seat Democrats or Republicans could pick up on the margins. The other big question, of course, are, are there any outstanding court cases that are kind of lingering that could drop a big bomb on the process like this New York ruling the other day did? So as you mentioned, I think that the, the biggest question mark is in Florida in particular. 
where Republicans have passed an extreme gerrymander of their own. And it, it seems pretty clearly actually to be a violation of the state constitution. But then Republicans like Governor Ron DeSantis are arguing that the Florida constitution is itself unconstitutional under the U.S. constitution. And so there is a question of kind of who the, the Florida courts will side with, whether they'll side with the Florida constitution or whether they'll agree with DeSantis' argument. And that obviously would have implications if the Florida map, which has been equally important as the striking down of New York's map to kind of eliminating this democratic advantage in redistricting, if that gets thrown out, then we'd be back almost a square one. But there's also a question of there's probably not enough time to throw it out this cycle, but then actually Democrats are trying or they're they're focusing on one specific district that they want to get thrown out for this cycle. And they're saying the rest of the changes to the map that they want to see can wait. So it's it's all very complicated. Okay, so potentially some things in flux. Sarah and Nate, I'm curious what you make of this dynamic, where earlier in the cycle, it seemed like Democrats would pick up enough seats in this redistricting cycle where the two parties would basically pull even. So it's not to say that these would be fair maps in the sense that they're drawn competitively and where, you know, there's lots of movement as public opinion shifts. It looked like the maps were going to be so gerrymandered that sort of Democrats would lock in an advantage in a bunch of seats and Republicans would lock in an advantage in a bunch of seats that was about to like an equal degree. How has this all fallen apart and what does that mean for the next decade? Democrats are incredibly stupid for having unilaterally disarmed in a lot of states and redistricting. And of course, they can change that. They can, depending on the state, propose changes that would take it away, for example, from an independent commission in California and let them aggressively gerrymander based on the state legislature or whatever else. Maybe now that you're going to have maps that probably wind up hurting Democrats a bit, although maybe not more than the previous maps, but be in the ballpark, they'll start to reconsider that. Gerrymander more Democrats. Um, but uh, no, Nate has a point. I mean, as Nathaniel was saying at the outset, you know, when we were doing our earlier kind of overview of the state of play in March, when it looked like things were a bit more settled, the reason why the bias in the House that had advantaged Republicans for, you know, decades now was going to plummet was because of these gerrymandered maps, particularly the one in New York. And I think it goes to show just how tenuous those gains often are for either party. And, you know, the courts are still the courts and are trying to, to roll with some semblance of a fairness for these maps um, and making sure that they're competitive moving forward. But I think, you know, a big takeaway from this cycle, too, has just been that either party, when given the possibility, is not really trying to draw competitive seats. And that continues to be something that is plummeting. And, you know, Nathaniel earlier this year kind of looked at the power of independent commissions and what they've done. And to Nate's point, they've largely hurt Democrats because they're in states where, you know, Democrats would stand to gain, perhaps, um, had they been in control of the redistricting process. Yeah, I mean, Democrats are still in charge of Congress and the Supreme Court has kind of said that, well, you know, it's kind of up to Congress to decide what it wants to do. You know, another way in which Democrats have totally screwed up is that they didn't really like think very strategically about this broad set of reforms they proposed under the umbrella of H.R. 1. If you look at all the things that would matter in that set of proposals, I think most people would say that gerrymandering reform is the most impactful step. Instead, we heard a lot of other rhetoric about voting rights and campaign finance and other things, right? And it became a bill to please different coalitions, but you wind up with nothing really. I mean, in theory, Democrats could try to focus something more, again, on 
ending partisan gerrymandering. I guess that would not at this point (laughs) have an effect for this upcoming 2020 cycle. But they are in control of Congress and it seems like they've kind of given up on, on structural changes, really. Well, yeah, but I mean, to actually change how states redistrict nationwide, first of all, there'd be plenty of questions about the constitutionality of it all, but also it would have to be a filibuster-proof majority. So they'd need 60 votes. It's not just they could pass it with a tie-breaking vote from Vice President Harris. That seems unlikely. But, you know, when it comes to this idea of Democrats unilaterally disarming, there were sort of restrictions set up in states like Michigan and Ohio for gerrymandering. But they don't, you know, in Ohio in particular, it just doesn't seem like it's quite worked the way that reformers intended. Whereas, you know, in in Democratic states like New York, the courts have said, you know, you're gerrymandering, you can't do this. What happened in Ohio, Nathaniel? Yeah, a lot of it just does come down to kind of dumb luck. So what happened in Ohio was that well, it's a really long story, so I don't want to get into all the details, but there were spark notes. <laughs> there were multiple steps in the process which were designed to produce a fairer map with bipartisan buy-in that did not. And eventually kind of the fail-safe at the end kicked in where Republicans ended up passing their own map without bipartisan support. And that map ended up getting struck down by the courts for violating the the fairness provisions in the Constitution that you mentioned, Galen. So after the map was struck down, the Republicans put in a new map that was slightly less gerrymandered, but still pretty biased. Democrats had to file a new court challenge, that new map, in order to get it struck down. And they just kind of run out of time. And Ohio has one of the earliest primaries in the nation, as we're about to talk about and about to cover on the site at 538, uh, live blogging on Tuesday night. And the courts just basically said, we can't decide this until uh, the, the constitutionality of this new map until after the primary, which of course means that we're probably looking at at least one election cycle under this map, uh, even if it is eventually found to be gerrymandered. So uh, the courts may still in the end you know, find it to be unconstitutional based on this reform that had passed. But in many states, we're actually seeing just kind of running out of time. And, and this goes all the way back to the fact that the census results came in late and there was just less time to redistrict and then litigate that redistricting than in past cycles. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, folks may remember that these maps end up getting litigated basically the whole decade long until they're redrawn. I mean, The maps in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, for example, were getting changed as recently as like 2018. So I think we can expect that the litigation will continue. And it oftentimes depends in states like North Carolina, where there are partisan elections for uh, state Supreme Courts. It oftentimes sort of hinges on who ultimately gets elected to state Supreme Courts. I mean, I guess this fight continues. Before we talk about those Ohio primaries, are there any other states we should keep an eye on in terms of how this all shakes out? Kansas, I guess, is uh, the one where you have this map that's also been struck down. It just because of its size is just not as impactful as New York or Florida, for example. But um, one seat is in the 
kind of hanging in the balance. Kansas's third district, that's a currently Democratic-leaning, Democratic-held district that the Republican map drew to be light red, and, and that's the map that got struck down. So Democrats could save themselves a seat with a, kind of a positive court ruling for them in Kansas. Um, so that is worth watching for folks. But at this point, you know, the, the kind of the big picture is focusing on the bigger states and everything else is just kind of for us nerds. What about New Hampshire, dude? two whole seats yeah new hampshire is having a lot of trouble considering they only have to draw one line between one state or between two districts and also the process there is completely controlled by republicans and they can't agree it's the republicans in the legislature who want to gerrymander in actually a very interesting way which is they want to create one safe red safe-ish red and one safe-ish blue seat instead of two competitive seats but the governor chris sununu wants to keep the kind of status quo of two competitive seats and it's interesting too because it's like if I came to you and I said, Galen, if I could give you one candy bar and myself candy bar, or if you want to flip a coin and you get both candy bars or no candy bars, which would you take? And it's kind of, it's not really clear which one you would take. So I find that debate interesting. <laughs> I say, luck be a lady, Nathaniel. You know, I say, I say gerrymander one district into Vermont and one into Maine. We don't really need New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get your shit together, New Hampshire. Lose your state. That's the attitude we all know and love. Okay, so really quickly, Ohio, because of how botched this all is, is actually not even going to hold its state legislative elections tomorrow, May 3rd, when the rest of the state's elections are happening. Those are probably less of national interest anyway. I think what's most of national interest is the Republican Senate primary there. We're going to live blog it. We're going to have a late night reaction pod, so we won't sort of show all our cards now, but just as a heads up, where does it look like that race stands and what are we hoping to learn from the result? I think, you know, J.D. Mandel. Oh, oh, whoops. Uh, J.D. Vance. Um, and for That's such an inside joke that I have a feeling that people who weren't online this weekend won't even know what you're talking about. Galen, we, we don't have a random sample of the American population listening to this podcast, OK? But if it weren't for Slack, I wouldn't even know what she was talking about. OK. Well, look, let you in on a secret, listeners. Trump at a campaign rally accidentally uh, got his endorsement of J.D. Vance mixed up and called him J.P. at one point and then J.D. Mandel, if I'm not mistaken. Which is the last name of the opponent of J.D. Vance. Exactly. And so this has been an incredibly contentious primary where, you know, Mandel had been trying to court Trump's endorsement. Then there was reporting that Republicans were upset that he had ended up backing Vance instead of Mandel. Maybe now, you know, he actually meant to back Mandel. Some Republicans are trying to use that now as an opening here at the last minute because as Nathaniel wrote, in his preview of the primary, you know, we have seen since Trump's endorsement here in April that uh, Vance had a surge in the polls. And, you know, as we've written multiple times at 538, momentum, you know, doesn't always last, but it certainly has changed the trajectory of the race where Mandel had been to the extent that there's a front runner in a crowded field of seven candidates, a front runner, and all eyes are kind of on that race tomorrow, particularly as it offers such a interesting snapshot into what the future of the GOP is going to look like. You know, Senator Rob Portman retiring was much more of a moderate candidate who from time to time would be critical of Trump. That certainly isn't really reflected in this field with only one candidate seeking the, the Senate who has, you know, said that the 2020 election, you know, was fair. 
Yeah. And what's interesting is that even in the wake of the Trump endorsement, the the polls that have come out in the race really look like it's it's a crowded race. There are kind of three candidates with around 20 percent in the polls. So that would be Vance, Mandel, and then actually the, the anti-Trump or somewhat anti-Trump candidate, Matt Dolan. But then you also have wealthy businessman Mike Gibbons, who isn't too far behind. And then you also have Jane K- Timkin, who's kind of in fifth place, but she's also been in the mix as well. So it, it really is a wide open race. So it'll be very interesting. Tune in to see who wins with 538 later. I know. Excited to get back in the mode of recording midnight podcasts. Super excited. And all of the insightful analysis that sleep deprivation entails. And there's no runoff, right? Like it could basically be a fluke who ends up winning. I mean, you know, whatever. Call it a fluke. Call it the way elections in first past the post system work. Yeah. 25% could be enough. All right. We will see what happens. Let's leave it there and move on to our 2024 Democratic primary draft. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Picking up where we left off last week, we drafted 12 potential Republican nominees for our first 2024 primary draft. As a refresh, Nate, You had first pick and you drafted Trump, Haley, and Tim Scott. I had second pick and I drafted DeSantis, Marsha Blackburn, and Glenn Youngkin. Sarah had third pick and drafted Ted Cruz, Mike Pompeo, and Rick Scott. Nevada Rakich, you had last pick and you drafted Mike Pence, Tucker Carlson, and Greg Abbott. Now is the time to draft possible 2024 Democratic nominees. As our usual reminder, this is a draft of people who are likeliest to win the party nomination, not necessarily who is likeliest to win the presidency. And thanks to random.org, we have again randomized the order of our snake draft here. And the order is Nate Silver, Nathaniel Rakich, Sarah Frostenson, and then me. Nate, are you in bed with random.org because you've ended up going first for both of these randomized (laughs) snake drafts? I will not answer a personal question like that. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, this does feel rigged. Yeah. Third, twice. I mean, you know, these days, everything's rigged. Okay, Nate, would you like to have the honors? Go ahead, start us off. I'm going to pick Joseph Robinette. Is that his middle name? Biden, the current president of the United States. He is quite old. So you have to kind of think a little bit actuarially, actually here. Um, But I don't think there's a particularly close number two. Even if we assume there's some chance that he would choose not to run or not be able to run, he has signaled his intention to run. I think, frankly, the fact that there's, we can talk about Kamala Harris in a second. Hey, don't don't pick Reagan just second pick for him. I think if Joe Biden 
thought it was someone who would be as likely as him or more likely to win, that Joe Biden would be more likely to retire. I think Joe Biden, it's based on no reporting at all or anything, it's just me trying to infer how a person might think, right? I think Joe Biden probably thinks that if he doesn't run, it lessens Democrats' chances of winning, and therefore he's more likely to run. Anyone have anything to argue with that? No, I mean, he's clearly the most likely Democratic nominee. I do find it's really interesting because he will be 82 in 2024, and it is just very hard to imagine somebody running for president at age 82. But it's also very hard to imagine a president voluntarily stepping down after one term. It hasn't happened since the 19th century. So, yeah, it'll be interesting either way. Yeah, because I think we forget about it now. But, you know, when he was running for president in 2020, particularly in the general election portion of the campaign, it was a raging pandemic. And so he was out of the public eye, not really hitting the campaign trail in in kind of the way we've traditionally covered elections in the U.S. And just, right, him closing in on 82, it does make this a little hard to fathom him running again. But I think, as Nate was saying, like, I don't know who number two is and slash, I think that's motivating for, for Biden to run again, even if he is 82. Do you think that if he were to say that he's not going to run again, it would become more clear what strong options are? Or do you think that he doesn't feel like they're necessarily strong options and he's right? I mean, you are stuck in between. Like one thing the White House could try to do if it thinks Biden might not run and and that it doesn't want Kamala Harris to be the alternative would be to start. I mean, that gets very complicated, right? It could, I guess, start to try to like, back channel certain rumors and there's some utility in that, right? Maybe you see how different constituencies would react to a a certain name. But the more you have your fingerprints on the back channeling, the more there starts to be stories about A, Joe Biden might not run, B, Joe Biden's trying to undermine Kamala Harris. And so it's a very dangerous game to play. I want to pursue this line of thinking that Either it is true that or Biden thinks that Harris wouldn't be a strong candidate, but maybe we'll get to that when someone picks her. So with that, Nathaniel Rakich, what's your second pick? Well, that's a good segue, Galen. I'm going to choose Vice President Kamala Harris. I think she is by far the most likely nominee if Biden decides not to run. I see her in a position similar to Biden was in 2020, where, you know, she'd probably get a spirited challenge from the left, but ultimately she's in a good position as the kind of more moderate slash establishment candidate in a party that uh, is still, you know, more moderate slash establishment oriented. She would also have a base among black voters being black herself and being kind of the heir apparent to Biden, who was supported by black candidates. In fact, they really carried him to the nomination in places like South Carolina in 2020. So, yeah, I frankly don't see, you know, I don't envy you guys with a third or fourth pick. Uh, I don't see anybody else who really could be the nominee other than Harris or Biden, to be honest. Really? I I would be trying to trade the the second pick if I had it. I mean, she clearly is second most likely, but that's partly because there's not an obvious third most likely more than that she's a particularly likely nominee. Nate, can you tease out a little bit why you feel like she is so comparatively weak? Like normally we'd be thinking vice president, 82-year-old president. This seems quite obvious. Why does it not seem obvious to you? Number one, I think Democrats care a lot about electability. 
Number two, I think Democrats will conclude that she's not electable. Is that correct or not? I don't know. And her race and her gender complaint and perceptions of this, however, some evidence to consider is that her performance in 2020, I think when when the race started, I think I had my subjective tiers. I think we had Biden and Harris in tier 1A and, and 1B or something. I don't know where Bernie was close, but I think I had those two at the top, right? And that was kind of in line with the conventional wisdom was that she was a very formidable candidate and she did not even make it to Iowa. That is in the 90 or 95th percentile of worst performances relative to expectation in the history of contested primaries. She is also not from a swing state, does not really have a track record of winning over swing voters. She did not particularly in 2020 win all that many endorsements, very few from outside her home state of California. So for someone whose strength is supposed to be as a coalition builder, she seems to lack very much buy-in. I also think the White House has not done her a lot of favors. It's kind of given her a lot of fairly thankless, dead-on-arrival policy initiatives like voting rights, which might lead one to conclude that the White House is not trying to help her. And that might imply that the Democratic establishment does not want her to be the nominee and, and wants an open primary instead. Finally, I'm not sure who her fans are exactly. A lot of Democrats like her well enough, but like, who is the enthusiastic constituency for her? In a race without Biden, there might be more people, but like, but I'm not sure who that is exactly. She kind of lacked much of a bedrock of support in that primary, right? It wasn't like she ebbed and flowed between like 10% and 20 and got stuck at 10, right? It's like she went all the way down to like four or 5% when she dropped out. And that seems like, that seems kind of problematic. So, I mean, I, you know, I would take the field against her conditional upon Biden not being the nominee. Would I take any individual in that field above her? No. I mean, she is like, has a very capable resume and and will probably hire very well. She'll have her pick of the most competent staffers and advisors. She will have experience to, to talk about, history-making experience, I should say, right? She's subjectively to me, seems like she's very smart. So those are all things in her favor. But politically, I think she is not very strong. Yeah, I, I see that argument, Nate, and I don't necessarily disagree with any of it. But I think the main difference between 2020 and 2024 will be, you know, I mean, this is all conditional on on Biden not running, right, is that Biden won't be in the race. I think that a big part of her problems in 2020 were that exactly the kind of person who would have backed her was behind Biden in 2020. And he kind of blocked out the sun for a lot of other candidates, similar to Harris. And so I think that there weren't necessarily super enthusiastic Biden voters last time either. But to the extent that there were, I think those people would become enthusiastic Harris voters. I think that, yeah, as you mentioned, the the campaign talent would go to her and the endorsements as well. We should stipulate, too, that there is a difference between a scenario where Joe Biden decides he's going to be a one-term president and where Kamala Harris is already president. I think in that scenario, she would likely still be challenged. Yeah, but I think it would be a much harder to challenge her in that situation. I think it would be different. And frankly, if you kind of do the odds, I mean, conditional on Joe Biden not running, we should be more free about talking about when you have 79-year-old presidents that they can die. Okay, we've been talking about age on this podcast like three podcasts in a row. I know, but I think I, think I want to like kind of 
transmit that out there and get some angry person to like write an angry tweet thread so I can tell them how wrong they are, right? <laughs> <laughs> literally, literally, the inside motivations of Nate Silver revealed in person live. No, it's not an inside motivation to get in a fight. It's because like- I know, Nate. That makes parties dumb. Like if Democrats had not realized like one of the most important questions facing the party was, what if Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies, Right. And not like, oh, she's a nice old woman. No, I'll make a poster about her in Brooklyn. You know, <laughs> that is one of the most consequential actions in the history of the Democratic Party. We're going to motor along here. I should also say, you know, because data journalism is our duty, Harris's unfavorability rating is 52% favorable rating, 40%. That's only two points different from Biden right now. So she is less popular, but not by all that much, given, you know, her current role and current polling. Sarah, you get third pick. Take it away. Okay. So I actually do think that there is a um, clear third option here. And I think that is Pete. (laughs) Indeed it is. Indeed it is. No, Vanity Fair had this really great article um, kind of outlining essentially our um, draft here. Like, you know, what is going to happen if Biden doesn't run? And I loved this quote where it's like plan B. So who replaces Biden is complete fucking chaos. And I think as you kind of see here on display, it is. We all are kind of grasping at straws. And I think it goes back to what Galen was saying at the outset here, which is, you know, would that be slightly different if we knew that Biden wasn't going to run again? Or is the bench really that weak? And I think it goes back to, you know, Republicans as a whole are ideologically speaking, just a lot more cohesive. They're conservative. Yes, conservative increasingly means, you know, like pro-Trump, but they have like this cohesive identity. Whereas I think Democrats are much more fractured along, you know, how liberal are they? There's still a lot of moderate voters who identify as Democratic. Anyhow, Pete Buttigieg, um, in that Vanity Fair article, they had this great line where they said, he's going to be running for president until he's president or until he's dead. And I think that does sum up Buttigieg really well. He is very, um, you know, competitive, um, seeks uh, national attention. He published a book recently um, kind of talking about what it was like running in 2020. He ran a really good campaign. You know, Nate was making the point earlier that Harris didn't even make it to Iowa. You know, Buttigieg actually won Iowa. I know it was close between him and Sanders. I think Sanders actually won the delegate count, but Buttigieg won the vote count, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was the other way around. Other way around. Okay. He came out, though, that night and claimed victory, which, you know, dishonest, perhaps, but also a very smart political move. He did well in New Hampshire. He ended up, of course, you know, dropping out with Klobuchar on Super Tuesday, but is in the Biden administration, would be running as a cabinet secretary. Um, I realize, you know, it is the cabinet uh, for transportation, so maybe not the sexiest position. But trains he, are cool. I th- trains Especially are cool. amongst Democrats. Um, I know he... It's true. (laughs) Especially with Democrats. Well, that's the thing, right? You know, that was the other thing I thought that was really telling in the Vanity Fair article is that he is the one who kind of appeals to the Obama nuts. And that is still, I think, a very like cohesive identity within the Democratic Party, kind of that wonky, you know, pragmatic uh, politician. I think he fills that void. He appeals to those types of voters. I think you can maybe make the argument that, you know, that's not enough of the Democratic base. But I think it gives him, you know, out the gate, a solid um, threshold of support. And I don't think there's a lot of love between him and Harris. um, And I could definitely see him throwing his hat in the ring no matter what. 
Yeah, I could see him running against Harris. He's clearly an ambitious guy, wants the job. But I I think the big issue with Buttigieg in 2020 was his complete lack of support among voters of color who are the Democratic base. And in a race against Harris in particular, um, you know, the first black woman to be vice president, I don't see how he solves that problem. And I just don't see how you can win without that. Maybe if both Biden and Harris declined to run, which that would take, I think, a pretty extraordinary set of circumstances, um, then I think you could maybe see the argument for Buttigieg, you know, being if he becomes the establishment pick and um, voters of color, particularly black voters um, like establishment candidates, then maybe. But um, in a head to head against Harris, I just don't see how he has the math. I think that's a, a fair point, but she didn't have black support right, in the but 2020. But again, that's because of Biden. Like she would clearly inherit that support. Mm. I don't think it's clear either. Because remember, Booker also didn't. And I know you can point to saying, oh, look, Biden was in the field and that's why. Um, I'm not entirely, I think there's a good argument for why Nathaniel, particularly given like her national profile, it gives, you know, black voters maybe more of an assurance that, you know, Harris is a, um, you know, brand name, voters are going to back her. But I also think it goes back to like, she had some constituency problems. It's not entirely sure who her base is now. Um, and if black voters are some of the most pragmatic democratic voters, I'm not sure that they would back no, her. No, I think, yeah, the argument that Transportation Secretary Mayor Pete lacks support among voters of color is very important. And I don't take for granted at all that he would be skilled at finding a way to, to fix that. Um, I do think that Harris also has <laughs> not proven very much in that department. I mean, I think Buttigieg is kind of a high floor, low ceiling guy. Um, the kind of neoliberal moderate consultant class will like him a lot. They'll see him as moderate and affable, et cetera. Um, and that maybe gets you something, right? Um, but I think he probably needs like a, a divided primary or elongated, maybe not divided to the convention, primary to win, right? Where like, you know, you get your 25%, you win some early states and and you kind of gradually become acceptable enough, maybe by being a pretty good political operator and maneuverer, right? Um to kind of cobble together a, a, a narrowly winning coalition. I don't think you're going to see, who knows? I mean, he's a talented guy and we shouldn't underestimate people, I guess. It's a little hard to see him spontaneously becoming immensely popular among, among very wide groups of Democrats because he's also, it's not just that like black and Hispanic Democrats, it's also the left. White leftists don't really like Mayor Pete at all either. And um, although it's a constituency that's like noisier online than IRL, it's still a pretty decent chunk of the party. And so you're now kind of having multiple problems with multiple groups. I actually have some bias towards letting this conversation continue. So I have more time to figure out who the hell I'm going to pick. <laughs> <laughs> but we should move on to my two picks. And this is quite hard. On one hand, I think that if Biden doesn't run and the country is still facing a lot of the challenges that it faces today, inflation, 
lingering COVID problems, wars abroad, supply chain issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For ambitious Democrats, and I'm not the kind of person who says like, oh, there's no leadership bench on the left. I think there are people who could come in and over some time become strong candidates to win a Democratic primary, win the presidency, potentially whatever. But actually ambitious people aren't going to want to run for president necessarily in that environment. And so if it is like Biden doesn't run and so the Democratic Party has all of the disadvantages of being responsible for government, but none of the advantages of actually having an incumbent, I think a lot of people will look at that situation and say, if I want to be president this year, it's not my year. Which is what leads to my first pick of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is not the kind of person who can wait around much longer to run for president. And also part of his project has not necessarily, you know, so far been winning the nomination or becoming president, but just to mainstream his ideas to a further degree within the party and across the country. And so on one hand, in an open field, what does he have to lose from running again? He has near universal name recognition. He, at his best, can straddle something of a divide between working class voters in the party and this kind of like far left elite, whatever intelligentsia, I don't know what you want to call it, the online left, etc. And so in an open field situation, he doesn't have that much to lose. In a situation where Biden runs again, he also might still run because the left will have become sort of despondent by the end of those four years at how little of their progressive agenda has ultimately been pursued. Those are sort of the reasons why he would run. Um, those aren't necessarily the reasons he would win. According to polling, he has basically just as good a chance as Harris or Buttigieg. And so I think for a number four pick in a Democratic primary draft, he is the best that I can do. I think that was very well argued, Galen. You convinced me. Yes. <laughs> he is old. Yeah. Right. The big question is, will he run? But he didn't close the door. Actually, just last exactly. week, he specifically said, I'm not closing the door. So conditional on him running, I agree with putting him relatively high. I'm not sure he will run, but. And also, as we talked about two or three weeks ago, when we had the conversation about Diane Feinstein, there are universal truths about getting older and there are individual truths about getting older. Obviously, he did have a heart attack during the 2020 election that he you know, bounced back from. But in general, in debates and sort of the enthusiasm and energy with which he still carries himself, I think ultimately image and appearance matter just as much, if not more than numeric age. You know, like Nancy Pelosi is 82 and just went to Ukraine to meet Vladimir Zelensky. It's really interesting, Galen, because, yeah, because there was that moment during the 2020 cycle briefly where it looked like Bernie Sanders might actually be the nominee before everybody um, on the establishment freaked out and coalesced around Biden. And presumably you would see something similar like that happen to Harris. But if you buy into the arguments that Harris is um, weaker than than Biden was in 2020, um, you know, because people have these, you know, perceptions of her being not electable or or just, um, you know, the lack of enthusiasm around her, um, maybe that coalescing doesn't happen and, and Bernie become the nominee. Yeah. Now I'm with Nate. The coalescing happens because they're like, oh God, not Sanders. Anyone but. But would Buttigieg, Buttigieg defer to Biden? Would he defer to Harris? I'm not so sure. I mean, I think at the end of the day, 
Probably. And then he's young enough to, you know, save his powder for another day and run later. And maybe he's vice president. Maybe he's vice president. Exactly. Maybe that's what it gets him. Okay. So we're going to try to do three rounds here. So I will take my second pick right now. So for this one, I'm not going to look at the polls and I'm not even going to look at past primary contests. But I think that I'll make this pick based on what I know about the Democratic Party. In an environment where the situation of the country looks not all that great for Democrats to win in a general and kind of people are maybe feel like they have to run or maybe they just want to like get their feet wet and see what it's like to run for president, raise their national profile, start a donor list, you know, fundraise a bit. In that situation, you could see some people who are a few cycles off from making a real pitch for president, you know, maybe running. I don't know if this is the best analysis because Democrats do oftentimes like to promote a total newcomer like Pete Buttigieg or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or whatever. But my pick is Raphael Warnock. He is not even on the board when it comes to the early Democratic primary polls, but also it's too early to give those polls much credence anyway. And so why not go with somebody who makes sense to me on paper? And here's why he makes sense in a Democratic primary. I think that perhaps the most powerful position you can be in within the Democratic Party is somebody whose ideology is somewhat ambiguous to moderate or maybe even conservative while being a person of color. And part of the reason that is, is because white moderate candidates sort of really take it from the left for not being aware enough when it comes to racial politics and things like that. And also for other reasons, for not being you know, economically liberal. I think it is harder for the left, and we see this with Eric Adams, to credibly critique a black moderate or maybe a Hispanic moderate or what have you. I don't think that Wafael Warnock is conservative, but I think he's moderate and I think he's at least ideologically unplaceable. He has aspects about his identity that frustrate partisan politics. He's a pastor. He's very religious, which also makes him a good speaker and a good communicator. He showed us that he's electable in a purple to red state. He's very willing to go where the voters are. You know, that ad where he wore his like finance bro vest and had like his beagle puppy in rich suburbia. He knows how to sort of play politics and frustrate expectations when it comes to identity. And so I think he would have the ability to weather any potential critiques from the left and have broad appeal to the rest of the party. I don't think he would have to have like radical economic positions in order to get the left on board with him. All that to say, if he wins re-election in 2022, I think he would really make a viable candidate in 2024. And if he does win re-election, there'll be a lot of people talking about him. And if it's not in 2024, it will be eventually. My biggest question, I think, with him, right, is like if Harris is in the field, does he still jump in, considering they kind of would share the same ideological lane? I disagree. I think Kamala Harris is actually seen as quite far to the left through things that are due in part to how she's campaigned and in part to biases of the American public. I think in order to try to deal with the fact that she was a prosecutor in an environment that was talking about defunding the police, you know, in that environment, she went pretty far left out the gates. And coming from California, coming from San Francisco, reading as a person of privilege in the way that 
she dresses and the way she appears and the way she talks, I don't think that she's perceived as all that moderate. Interesting pick, Galen. Yeah, I think, again, you make a pretty compelling argument for a candidate that I hadn't been seriously considering before. I think for both of your picks, right, it just boils down to whether they run. I, I completely buy your argument that if he were to run, he would make a compelling case. But just because we haven't heard any buzz about that, I'm not sure that that's at all in his plans. I mean, it's a pretty quick turnaround to go from, first of all, he might not win re-election, in which case he's... Yeah, I think that's the biggest downside of this. I think if he wins re-election, you will hear buzz. But if he doesn't, right. That's my guess. Yeah. It's a great third or fourth round value pick in the second round. Wow, wow. That's offensive, Nate. That is a dick. Looking forward to see who you pick for your second round. But anyway, it sounds like both of my picks were so effectively argued that I, you know, I don't have any, I don't have very much to argue against. So Sarah, we'll turn it back to you. Okay. So I feel like this is kind of similar to the vibe uh, for Marco Rubio in the sense that people's hopes were dashed in 2016 and so don't want to talk about it. But I'm going to say Cory Booker, who I was bullish on very early on in the 2020 Democratic primary. Um, I think, you know, in comparison to Warnock, for instance, he has been senator for much longer. Granted, you know, New Jersey is a much bluer state, though, lest we forget, you know, particularly for governor, they have, you know, backed Republicans previously. Booker it is an open question as well. You know, does Harris run? They often were lumped into the same category. And presumably, you know, he would not take on Harris because I think they do occupy the same lane, even if Harris perhaps is painted as a bit more liberal, given where she was in the Democratic primary. I think Booker very much ran as a moderate. He is an inspirational speaker when he turns on the charm. He had a really good uh, display with uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson's hearing and terms of defending her and her position on the court that you could see being kind of, you know, inspirational moving forward. I think, you know, that's two years out. I don't have a ton else to say about Booker, but I do think, you know, he's young. He's only, he would only be 50 or he is just 52 now. And I think he could have another act on the national stage. Did this turn into a 2028 draft? I wasn't. <laughs> 2028, it's the same thing. Right. Isn't that precisely the conflict here? The problem is like, so one reason why Bernie Sanders is at least a decent pick is because he might run even if one of Joe Biden and Harris runs also, right? Yeah. Booker seems on the extreme other end of that, right? That like Booker is not going to, he's a loyal party guy. He's young enough that he can wait his time out, right? He's not going to run in a primary with Harris. He's not going to run against Joe Biden. So you have to, I mean, he might be the type of guy if they both don't run, then he's one of the more obvious establishment traditional lineage candidates, right? Like it goes back to what I said with Harris, which is like everything path from pick three on is like this, we're only entertaining this in a universe in which, except I guess for Bernie Sanders, that was a blind spot on my part, Galen. But like from there on, we're only talking about people who. Oh, I, I couldn't I couldn't disagree more. I think President Mayor Transportation Secretary Pete would challenge her. I think a lot of people would. But Booker wouldn't. I think that's fair. I don't think Booker would challenge Harris. All the people who could potentially win would not challenge Harris is the thing. I think I would, I would put Booker in the category of could potentially win other than Bernie. Sorry, Bernie fans. No, I mean, I'm going to name people who could totally beat Harris. And I think I think might very well beat Harris. OK. All right. Well, I'm curious to see. So, Rekic, in order to 
deprive Nate of his joy, can you please pick AOC next? Because basically the argument that he makes, which in part is believable that, okay, if Biden doesn't run, then Harris runs. And if Harris runs, the like establishment lane is occupied. And that most people who could even potentially beat her wouldn't run just out of deference to her because of party politics. And so the people who would run against her would be people who have sort of a strong political message to make, which is why I assumed that his next pick was going to be AOC. Breakage, I set you up. We'll see if you take it. I'm not going with AOC, no. I will go with somebody on the left because I think that is an obvious elephant in the room here. I'm going to go with Elizabeth Warren. She is interested in the job, as we know. She did okay in 2020, enough that she has a, a base of support to build on. I think, look, the big question is, assuming Bernie doesn't run, you know, Galen's argument aside, there's obviously this question of who picks up the mantle on the left. Think probably it will be a very fractured field on the left, and that will ultimately torpedo them. They're already at a disadvantage against the establishment. I think Elizabeth Warren, she's at least at the top of that list, having run before and having that existing base. I'm not sure the Bernie people would get on board with her. I think, you know, there's been buzz about like Ro Khanna or somebody more kind of purely Bernie running, although I'm not sure Ro Khanna is purely Bernie, but apparently Bernie's people have been encouraging him to run. I think that, you know, in the event that there is this opening off to Warren's left. She could potentially inherit the Bernie support, add that to her, her support from 2020, and and that would be decent. I do think Harris, I guess, contrary to what I had just said, I think Harris will probably get some kind of challenge from, from the left. I'm not sure it would be Warren, but there'll be some competition there. At, again, at this point, I don't think it's particularly likely any pick that I make, but I think Warren at least has that existing base. She pretty robustly lost in 2020. She did not come close to winning a state. I mean, she's four years older now. She more- Still younger than Biden now. Younger than Biden, but like more so than Sanders is also seen as a team player. So we get to the scenario now where I think her running is fairly unlikely and conditional upon her running. I think her winning is pretty unlikely. And so she, I have, I have five people here who I'm itching to pick I'm going to have my choice now. And, and Warren was All right. nowhere near that, that list of five. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to think that things were set up pretty well for her in 2020 if she ever was going to win the primary, right? It was wide open. The party had seemed to like move left in her direction. There were some hiccups around electability. She was solidly in second place, maybe ready to compete with Biden for first in the polls, that is. And then there was like an electability freak out. I don't know if that will happen again, would happen again, whatever. But it's hard to imagine if 2020 didn't work out, why 2024 would. I mean, I agree. I don't think it's very likely, but she's just one of the few people who, you know, has gotten 20% in a Democratic primary poll or, you know, since 2019. So, okay. Nate Silver, without further ado. Which of your five your, your five people would you like to pick? At the end, you have to tell us who the five are. I'm very curious. I want to go with with the only candidate who, uh, while she was a student at Michigan State University, babysat my friend. Wait, um, hold on. Which is Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Oh, I was going to be like, wait, can we just pick? Can we can we guess who it is based off that one detail? <laughs> oh, 
That's a good pick, I think. I think it's a good pick, but I again I think I think Democrats think that Harris would lose. And I think Whitmer's enough of an outsider. She's not a senator that makes it maybe a little bit easier than if you're a senator. Again, this is kind of the, the Warnock argument, which is a plus or minus, right? She's in a, a re-election race. I guess she's considered the slight favorite in that race, but no one's an overwhelming favorite in a purple state like Michigan in a, in a year like this. So if she runs, she will have a fairly impressive electoral track record. One of the people who did relatively well in 2020 was Amy Klobuchar. This candidate is a little bit in the same vein, but you add executive experience, a little bit more freshness. Klobuchar had some skeletons in the closet as far as how she, she treated staff. I don't know what Whitmer's would be. Um, she had some positives and negatives in how she handled COVID became controversial at various times. The Michigan's had different COVID surges, but that may not be the most pressing issue by the time the primary is contested. So I don't know. I mean, I think she's someone that will be seen as being pretty electable. For all the women candidates, including Harris, we should also be thinking about like, you know, it just kind of seemed like in 2020, you were in the shadow of Hillary Clinton and that cast a very long shadow over all the women candidates. You're going to be four years further removed from that now. But, you know, as someone in the Biden mold, right, but kind of good at kind of calibrating relative to the to the winds of the of the party. I think that's a good pick, Nate. But I think she's in the same camp as Booker where she wouldn't run yeah. against, you know, Biden or Harris. And you think she would? No, I don't think she would run against Harris either. Like, that's kind of what makes this draft so challenging is like. It does seem as if then we should just be doing a draft of the the Democratic left, because I don't right. see who else that is kind of like establishment-esque. Other, I, I take that, I do think Buttigieg is ambitious enough and maybe, okay, maybe I'm undercutting myself because if Buttigieg threw his hat in, maybe someone else does as well and it becomes a melee, but I struggle to see her also throwing her hat in the ring. There are two limiting factors here, which are, one, what you've mentioned, who is willing to run against Harris if she is running. I mean, there's a world in which neither Biden nor Harris run, I, I, I guess. But also, in that environment, are they, like, ambitious politicians who actually want to be president when they run? And all of the disadvantages that come with being responsible for government and none of the advantages that come with being an incumbent are really going to, I think, limit actually ambitious people. And I think that Gretchen Whitmer is one of those people. I think Gretchen Whitmer can see herself being president in the next decade or so. And I think that you make good arguments. Like she applies some cross pressure. There are aspects of her that sort of maybe resonate with a more moderate or conservative voter. She has the accent. Infrastructure was what she ran on and what she is trying to sort of bring the conversation back to now that she's running for re-election. I think her COVID advisors maybe did her dirty a little bit in the sense that they told her to ban selling gardening supplies at the beginning of COVID, and that gave her a bad rap. But there are aspects that I see that would make her a good candidate. But I think because she is actually ambitious, 2024 doesn't make sense, which is an argument against Warnock as well. But uh, so be it. <laughs> Some Democrats think that if they don't win in 2024, that there like, won't be more elections, right? Uh, so like more of a very online opinion than maybe what Gretchen Whitmer thinks. But like, I don't think you can underestimate how high the stakes Democrats think the election has. And I would guarantee you that if it's Harris against the left, that some other establishment candidate, unless it's maybe Bernie, if it's Bernie, then they might be so terrified of Bernie that like it's a deterrent, right? 
if she doesn't run, then I don't want to name some other people on my list, right? And ruin the list, right? You only have one more pick left and it's the next one. So you can name them. Okay. So I'm not going to make this pick. This would be someone else who would run, right? Like Jared Polis from Colorado. Wait, that's that's not fair. You like get the cred for picking that person, but then also don't actually pick them. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> no, I want to hear. I want to hear Nate's list. No, I think that's fair. But he's kind of already cultivated a brand as a moderate, as a little bit of an outsider. Has pushed back gently against some of the COVID policy from the White House and so forth. Right? And like, hold on. You don't actually get to argue for him if he's not going to be your pick. You can either name the rest of your five people. Okay. Or you can say your next pick and argue for them. But you can't do both. My next pick is Eric Adams. He clearly has few to give about the establishment. And he appeals to neglected parts of the coalition. I mean, to win a primary in New York, you have to appeal to working class voters of color. And that's kind of what his base is. It's also a very important base in the Democratic Party. He may appeal to some traditional moderates. He probably will not be liked by the left. I mean, he's kind of disliked by the left. But again, harder for them to critique him. The New York City electorate is not the worst proxy for the Democratic electorate overall. It's more non-white. And so that helped Adams in particular, right? But like the New York primary electorate is not that liberal, actually. Which is exactly why so many New York mayors have gone on to become president. That's it. But that is such a small. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. It's the smallest sample sizes. 95% of people who run for president fail or 90% or something, right? And so. I think it's a good pick for exactly the reason that I said earlier. I think the strongest position to be in in the Democratic Party right now is an ideologically unplaceable or moderate to conservative person of color. And he's got like a good troll game. He kind of like will garner a lot of attention in part because he knows how to needle people and that Trumpian or maybe we should not call it Elon Muskian skill is I think actually pretty valuable if you're in some type of divided five or six way or seven way or 15 way primary where you're trying to get attention. He will learn how to like pick the right fights to be a topic of conversation. He knows how to get media attention too. And in a world where you're running against either Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or what have you, that's going to be key. Yeah, I'm curious to see more of his term, though, as mayor. I mean, I think you're both right that he's done a great job so far kind of generating media interest. He's hard to pin down ideologically. But there's also kind of like questions around, is he actually going to be that effective? And maybe that doesn't matter. He's charismatic. I do think that matters a lot in terms of running for president. But I kind of want to see more of his track record. It's a hard set to be mayor, for sure. And New York faces budgetary challenges and all the usual challenges recovery from COVID issues. It feels like any New York mayor is set up to fail. And I take your point about it being a small sample size, but I think being a big city mayor is just a hard job. And that is a big part of the reason why that tends to be the end of their political careers. Also, there's a little bit of big city mayor without getting into too many particulars about Adams, right? Kind of patronage type issues that probably have higher than average scandal potential. Which is why Donald Trump obviously never became president. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Rakich, we are back to you. Which direction are you going to take us in? Well, I've been pleasantly surprised that uh, my second and third picks have fallen to me. Uh, I thought they would go earlier. Um, But for my third pick, I am going to go with North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper. That's very Jared Polis energy. 
Yeah, yeah, I guess it's it's kind of similar. Cooper's someone who hasn't been mentioned a ton, but he makes a lot of sense on paper. I guess he's kind of like your Warnock pick in that regard, Galen. He is a electable white man. He's been elected governor of North Carolina twice, um, which of course is a Republican leaning state. I think a lot of folks would you know be like, oh, he could win North Carolina and maybe some other places too and be electable. Uh, assuming he's interested in the job, I think he has a, a good shot, shot at being kind of the Biden-esque candidate in the event that both Biden and Harris don't run. And also, kind of to the point earlier, I could maybe see him running against Harris because he's in kind of a like a Steve Bullock situation where, you know, I, I believe he's term limited out. And what else is he going to do? He doesn't have a political career after that. So, you know, he might be like, yeah, I can take my shot at being president. And, and if not, you know, no harm, no foul. Did Steve Bullock run for president in 2020? I'm pretty sure the answer is yes. He did. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sorry, I should clarify that for folks. Steve Bullock is the former governor of Montana who ran for president for a hot second in 2020 and nobody noticed. But was a very electable guy as a, you know, Montana obviously being a red state. He's a Democrat, by the way. (laughs) But this whole like electability thing in the Democratic primary, it's like, yes, voters are saying that they care about electability, but they aren't thinking about national electability in quite the same way as a political analyst, where you're like, oh, you actually want to hew quite close to the middle. Being a red state Democrat is great or whatever. It's more like for Democratic primary voters, electability means towards the center of the Democratic Party, not towards the center of the country. Right? I don't know about that. Oh. I mean, what happened with Joe Biden in 2020 was pretty remarkable for the thesis that Democrats... Both the party, because we have to remember the whole sequence of events with James Clyburn endorsing him. He surges to a very big win in South Carolina. And then like the Voltron, everyone else comes together and endorses him, right? Like you have to like look at that scenario. I don't think Jared Polis is too far to the right, but I think Steve Bullock was ultimately too far. I think electability matters. It's like I'm tempted to pick Joe Manchin, but I'm not because electability doesn't matter that much to Democratic primary voters. But that's way, there's a big difference between Joe Manchin and even Roy Cooper. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well. Oh, absolutely. Yes. hundred percent. Show me what I know. Steve Hook was a perfectly mainstream liberal Democrat of Montana, governor of Montana. I do worry about Cooper being too much of a blank slate that you have to do a little name recognition. And it's like, you know, at least Polis is like the gay electable white guy or Mayor Pete, right? And like. I'm kind of joking, but like there's something like having something voters know about you instead of being like a total blank slate where it almost kind of seems like a pander where, oh, let's just kind of go pick the boring white guy. I don't know. Maybe my psychology of Democratic voters is wrong, but like I think it's like worthwhile to have a brand. Well, I think the media behaves that way. Like I think the media will cover him more or differently. Like, oh, he would be the first gay president or first openly gay president or whatever. I think those aspects of identity get you more coverage in the media. Yeah, that's maybe part of what I'm saying. Right. I think Cooper would be like villainized in some way, right? Like you see him entering the field if there are these concerns around Harris and her ability to win because they would be in a similar lane, but would have more of kind of, look, I've won in a in a swing state or honestly a state that votes Republican more often than not statewide. And maybe that helps him kind of gain the right type of traction he needs. But I think to Nate's point, it's like he's not as known of an entity like within the party. And so it's harder to see how he built out his base. They can say, I think Kamala Harris is too liberal. 
right? And they kind of have established like a little bit more of a track record as that is the reason why you're challenging her, right? That you need a, a moderate like Joe Biden in order to win. And Cooper being such a blank slate, I think that may be more of a problem. But it's not a bad pick. I mean, we're, we're in round three here. Okay, moving on, Sarah. Who is your third round pick? I don't really have a great pick, to be honest, at this point. So I'm going to bring some Tulsi Gabbard energy. And I think Kirsten Cinema. If we're talking about people who are going to run and Harris is running and Sanders is running and just like candidates who don't give a f- cinema is all over it. I realize that the underlying premise of this is that our pick is supposed to then win the nomination. And I think there are some really great arguments for why my pick will not win the Democratic nomination. But she could make a really compelling, like, look, I'm appealing to independents, Republicans. Maybe she's able to leverage this idea of like, hey, Democrats, if you're worried that we'll never have a free and fair election again post-2024, I'm your best bet because I can unify this country. I think there are, you know, reasons to be skeptical of that. It still is the Democratic primary. We saw how Gabbard did, for instance, kind of running a similar platform or ethos to that in 2020. But I definitely could see her running in the way that, like, no one could see Booker running. So I'll take that component of my pick. This is precisely my argument about Democratic voters care about electability and that they want you to be towards the mainstream of the Democratic Party. They don't want you to be in the middle of the country. And so you guys rejected this comment before, but I am sticking by it. I think, well, if we were drafting people who could win a general election, maybe this is a good pick, given that we're drafting people who can pick a Democratic primary. I don't think it's I'm not sure that she would beat Donald Trump in a Democratic primary. Like I, as someone who generally thinks like, oh, the kind of very online left is overrepresented in discourse relative to the actual primary. I mean, she is like, I think the dislike for her is A, pretty deep and B, like on. It's beyond Joe Manchin. Yeah. And like, it should be, it's kind of rational to say this is a now a purple state, Arizona, right? She is on our metrics, like way more out of line with what you would expect from Democrat in Arizona than Manchin is from West Virginia. To her credit, I mean, there are rumors that she'll run, right? She seems to have some type of design on on something, but like I think I agree with Galen that it's much too much of a bridge to to sell. Look, I agree. I'm just saying she could be the one who runs. I, I think she is a very credible pick to actually throw her hat in the ring. Yeah, like I honestly, to your point, Nate, I actually think a sort of pro-democratic norms Republican would do better in a Democratic primary than Kirsten Cinema because I think Democratic voters feel specifically like she has failed them or they feel like persecuted almost by Kirsten Cinema. Whereas like it's personal. Liz Cheney, they never expected Liz Cheney to raise the, you know, minimum wage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But like she's become a hero in her own right amongst a certain set on the left because she is so ardently pro-democracy or whatever. But wouldn't you love to see her in Sanders debate? <laughs> I mean, yes. Yes. I mean, can we just create an alternate universe where maybe we should bring back Crossfire? Deep cut. Anyway, I literally have no idea. I have no idea who to pick. I'm toying with Joe Manchin. Interesting. I am toying with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I don't think Stacey Abrams is going to win the governorship of Georgia, which is why I will not be picking her. I think 
Amy Klobuchar's energy worked in 2020. I just, I don't know why I don't see it working in 2024, but I don't. It's not like there's a lot of good people to pick. Given the way the sort of way we've worked ourselves up to this place where so many people wouldn't actually run because they wouldn't challenge the establishment and blah, 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 blah. It's either Manchin or AOC. Yeah, pick somebody on the left. The left has been underrepresented, very underrepresented in this draft. But I already have Sanders. Don't I need a rounded out? Yeah, that's fair, maybe. Slate? Manchin's not going to run. Just saving you that. Yeah, Manchin's Pick somebody else. He's on his houseboat, man. He's done. Okay, fine. All right, AOC. All right. Good debate. So I'm doing it for you guys. I'm not doing it for me. I'm not doing it so I can win. I'm doing it so we can talk about it. Well, don't worry. I sabotaged my picks. You got this, Galen. I think at this point we've made good arguments about why people from the ambitious people from the quote unquote establishment would not run in 2024. One, they actually want to be president. Two, they might not run against Harris. I think that... I think that if Sanders could get AOC to run, then maybe he would see a world in which it's a good vehicle for his ambitions, if not ultimately his own personal ambitions. She will be 34, so she can be president of the United States. She will also probably have multiple bites at the apple, so to say, which is why running for president early and often can get you your donor list and sort of build experience for when you might actually ultimately want to win the nomination. I still think there are some questions about whether she would run against Harris because I think she came onto the scene in 2018 more guns blazing in terms of critiquing the party and like being like F you to the establishment. Has it changed to the extent that she wouldn't challenge the establishment in a presidential election? I don't know. I'm picking her because she might plausibly run. That's, I guess, the the entire answer. I'm not sure that she would run. I feel like she is the kind of person who she ran initially to make a point and like, why not? And probably didn't expect she would win and then kind of ended up in this position. So I don't really, this maybe is naive, but I don't really see her as a kind of typical ladder climbing politician. She's not running for Senate this year, for example, the way that many people thought she would. So maybe she runs for president eventually someday, but she's obviously quite young, so she can very much pick her moment. And that moment is probably, you know, 2050 or something when the party, you know, party slash country is more progressive than it is now, potentially. But I think in general, this question of who is going to be, I mentioned this already, who's going to be the heir to Bernie Sanders on the left is a really interesting, really important question. I think that the future of that that person is probably a person of color on the left, because I think that is the key to the left winning in a Democratic primary. That's been a key to them winning these House primaries, kind of fusing the coalition of voters of color who you might normally expect to be more moderate, but also kind of the the whiter progressive activist left. And I think that that could be a really potent combination. My like sneaky last round pick, uh, if I was picking fourth again, was going to be someone like Ayanna Presley, who I think is someone who is very ambitious. She's been a, a politician in the Boston area for a long time, has been kind of building her way up the ladder. I think she has shown more of a like leadership role within the squad than AOC has. AOC has the name recognition, which is obviously 
important in a you know in the event that she were to run i think she would clear the field on the left in a way that only bernie would but i think presley you know has the ability to bring black voters who in particular are the most important democratic constituency along with the left and and could produce a an interesting coalition obviously again conditional on the fact that there's a reason that we've mostly been picking moderates in this draft democrats are still generally a you know fairly middle of the road party and and have all these electability concerns I think AOC is a good pick at this stage on the theory that she's high variance, right? We can cite a lot of issues. Her favorability ratings actually are pretty mediocre with Democrats, both in New York State and I mean not bad. She's in net favorable territory, right? But like she starts out with pretty high negatives relative to a candidate of her fame, I guess, right? Name recognition, I mean. But she is, you know, very smart and dynamic and ambitious. I'm not sure she wouldn't run, even if Biden is running potentially. I think there is some incentive to like become the heir apparent to Ooh. to Sanders. That is a good point. Right. She's more liable to run if Biden runs than if Harris runs. I don't know. I mean, she was on the record in 2020 saying that like in any other country, she would be in a different party than Biden. I think that would apply to how she would view Harris as well. It's just kind of the question of, is she the heir apparent to the Sanders wing? And does she want to take that on in 2024? But she could say that, like, I want to run, not because I think I'm going to win, but because I think it will help push the eventual nominee to the left, right? And then maybe she wins on accident. I mean, Bernie kind of almost won an accident, right? That's probably an exaggeration by an order of magnitude or so. But like, but like, it's not crazy to think that, like, like funny things happen, right? You're Donald Trump. You run for president, you win. Funny things do happen. All right, we have reached the end of the road. So let's recap. Nate, you have drafted team Biden, Whitmer, Gretchen Whitmer, Eric Adams. Nathaniel Rakich, you have drafted team Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Roy Cooper. Sarah, you have drafted team Pete Buttigieg, Cory Booker, Kirsten Cinema. Is it Kirsten or Kristen? Kirsten. Kirsten, right? Yeah. There's actually two of them. They're identical twins, and that's why... <laughs> You, you get the, the good and the evil. <laughs> Liberal Kristen Cinema is locked in a basement somewhere. <laughs> okay, Pete Buttigieg, Cory Booker, and Kirsten Cinema, and I have drafted Bernie Sanders, Raphael Warnock, and Alexander Ocasio Cortez. I think the left is going to be really happy with me for those picks, but it's in part, I guess, because I was picking people who I thought might actually run against an establishment candidate. Not a bad strategy. Is anyone willing to say it's someone who's not them won this round? No, I like my team this time, unlike last time. I feel like Nate, Nathaniel, and Galen all have really strong picks. Oh, that's so nice of you. I think you have strong picks too, except for Kirsten Cinema. <laughs> I was going to say, there's a black sheep in it though. I'm very eager for the Twitter replies on that one. Look, Nate, you very clearly drafted moderate to conservative candidates, which... I think you are right that that's still in many ways the future of the Democratic Party. But I just don't see how that specific future of the Democratic Party runs against Biden and Harris. Because, again, I have Biden. Yeah. <laughs> so for my portfolio, I, I hope Biden runs again, right? Conditional on Biden not running again. I, I mean, so much into earlier, like Harris's issue where the moderates think she's a liberal and liberal she's a moderate. 
that's like kind of the worst possible set of scenarios and one where someone might be compelled to, to challenge you. And again, we're also talking about what will probably be the environment after what will probably be a bad 2022 for Democrats. And that will be litigated endlessly, but the moderates will use it to say, hey, look, you know, we are in bad shape electorally. We're having trouble keeping our coalition together. We're losing moderate voters of color, right? And I think, I think. I mean, speaking of parts of the coalition that are falling apart, most notably Democrats have been losing Hispanic voters. So perhaps AOC, my third round pick is part of that solution. We'll see, Nate. That's a wrap. Ultimately, listeners, this is up to you. Who do you think drafted the best team? Let us know. You can tweet at us, email us, whatever you like. But thank you, Nate, Sarah, and Nathaniel. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary Curtis and our intern, Emily Vineski, are on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.